What's up? It is a new episode of Metric, the user experience podcast, now suddenly a podcast where two user experience designers talk about the things they love. I'm Michael Schofield. I am Tim Broadwater. Oh, we nailed it. We nailed the co-host thing. We're going to we're actually going to pick up sort of where the last podcast left off when we went on a major tangent about uh tabletop gaming. I don't even know how to start it. I don't have a good transition except that we've started up a slow chess like D&D game over Slack. Uh slow chess meaning that hey, we take our actions as we are able around our existing schedules. That means that a scene can take days, <laughs> but incredibly satisfying. Uh, it's so It feels so good to just sort of like get my hands back into that pie <laughs> um, and back into like the kind of the design of a world and kind of the crafting that game. I'm, I am the DM, so I am the one kind of onboarding these folks into this world I dreamed up. I have so many questions I need to ask you. No, do it. Do it. <laughs> Putting super goth LARPing aside. <laughs> <laughs> so how does it work? I mean, it's asynchronous and it's going over an instant messenger. Is that, do you find it like tedious or that there's too much time in between posts or um, is there confusion since it's text-based only? Yeah, it's, so it's funny. So let me give you a little background. When we were all 13 uh, and we all happened to be internet connected, we ended up in these chat rooms that were hosted by Yahoo uh, back when they had chat rooms. Um, it was Yahoo Chat. And we ended up playing kind of a free form role play there. We were those kids who, instead of doing things with their friends, we would log in at night and you know pretend we're vampires and, and stuff like that. Yahoo had the system of being able to emote, right? So you could have a character name as your username and you could read it narratively. So-and-so walks into the bar, right? As opposed to it being, I walk into the bar or, or something that kind of borders on that limb. It's really easy over time to kind of get invested in this narrative. Everything is third person in a way. So you're reading a scroll that is being written by all these different people. So that core group sort of like matured and we started playing some like kind of real tabletop games and, and things of that sort when, you know, through high school. Then everyone grew up and went their own ways. So we have this background now on, on kind of like playing in this way online. So in Slack, you can emote um, and you can write your own bots. And since I'm a developer, I wrote I wrote a dice roller, although they have others, um, but I wrote my own dice roller. And I have this, uh, this Slack bot called NPC bot, which basically lets you post to Slack without a username, right? So it doesn't say like Michael Schofield and then on the next line, a some paragraphs follow it's just the paragraphs that show so that as we go we can kind of like post narratively it is can kind of like a like barkeep says this or something like that or yeah that... yeah so um and so i have to also ask is your macro like uh is it available for other people to use i can make it available yeah it's all it is it's a really simple like bot that um is on a free heroku server and the way you use it is in slack you have to type slash npc and then your paragraph we have time zone issues um but the 
benefit of most of us working remote or those of us who don't having Slack on your phone because of the ubiquity of the app, they can participate in intervals, right? Like they go on break, they can play a little bit. It's not moving that slow. Uh, I'll tell you what, the campaign began like two days ago and we are still within the first like 24 hours of game time there. And so, you're like, you're the dungeon master or the game master? I don't understand the difference. Oh, so dungeon master is a term that is Dungeons and Dragons. Mm -hmm. Game master is Pathfinder Star. So they get- How do you distinguish them? They're exactly the same thing. It's just, I think copyrights, one's dungeon master, one's game master. So. The, another, a third one, just to throw it into the mix is storyteller. So in World of Darkness, you're not a DM or a GM you are the storyteller. So I was going to ask, like, you can use the, the rules for any system, right? And there's, right. Like a, there's a, you can fate core is a system that's completely, that's come out in the last couple of years and it's moldable to any narrative. And there's also like the 10 die system, which is like you said, white wolf. And then your traditional 20 D systems, Pathfinder, Starfinder, um, Dungeons and Dragons. What is the time period, I guess, is what I'd ask for that you're GMing in and are you using like, I think you said that you're using the 10 die system. No, we're using 20 die. Um, we're using D and D's system. Uh, so this is kind of like early medieval. There were greater empires or a greater kingdom. And now they are, you know, maybe a couple of centuries at, uh, into a kind of a lower age, a post kind of like a dark age. I, I, so I was I was briefly a medievalist. So like I liken this to maybe like the years like five like six hundred to like eight hundred some something of that sort. What is the place that they're in? Are they like starting in an established town that has a government and all that? Mm -hmm. kind of stuff, yep, or? they are. So so. <laughs> uh, oh okay. Like so now I I feel incredibly embarrassed to like just talk about this. But yeah, so there is each character begins as effectively a member of the city of the city watch they are in a, a city um a large one called a uh, yes as a as a language science major i created my my own language it translates to the ornament it's it's kind of like the city in uh kind of like the southwestern area of this uh continent their professional guard specifically the campaign begins basically drawing lots losing and beginning a pretty undesirable night shift so there are there are stretches of patrol throughout the night my You're thing gonna have is to give us give me some more what's the weird thing i i need just the you know what is well it? in case anyone like listens to it, i don't want to i don't want to call it like a lovecraftian horror but this is kind of a low fantasy supernatural thriller i joke that it's a cop drama but you know these are effectively you know the, 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 the police the the city guard and this is a world of there are no fireballs getting thrown around there aren't dragons in the sky there aren't things of that sort all, all of what we consider like magic or otherworldly has been relegated to fairy tales or myth or, or something like that religion maybe but it's not part of everyone's lives they've never seen anything miraculous themselves um, and they stumble onto some spooky stuff so the idea is uh, they're going to kind of go on a chase and depending on how they i mean they as you know they could totally be like this doesn't interest us let's go shopping <laughs> um, and just ruin my campaign but i expect to take them along a kind of like a bram stoker-esque chase after the big evil bad um, oh nice we talked in the last episode uh you were you know kind of listening to um critical role is that how you got into this or the re you know the revival here in the last couple of weeks yeah i have to credit critical role for just making me want to set this up yeah i uh 
I've tried so many times to like listen to the podcast or watch Critical Role, and it's just not that. I mean, there's many uh, Pathfinder and Starfinder. Every time they come out with a new season or a new something, you know, they kind of put it out there. Dungeons and Dragons, they um, when they kind of do special things and put it out there. And I, I akin it to like watching Twitch channels for people playing video games. I cannot. I can't. I'm just the type of person that I can't do it. I know why people watch it and then and listen to it, and um, it's enjoyable. Um, I just, I'm like, I'd rather be playing than actually watching people play. Um, so, but it's definitely resurged right now. I think tabletop gaming in general um, and tabletop role playing games. And uh, I, uh, as we discussed, you know, like in the last kind of podcast, I uh, I run each week, but um, I. I can't, I have, I like hate homebrew. I just, I loathe homebrew. <laughs> and it's something that's happened since I was in middle school all the way to now. Um, and so I kind of do organized play, which I think we talked a little bit about. Um, and organized play, you know, Shadowrun has it. Um, World of Darkness has it. Dungeons and Dragons has it. It's called Adventure League. Pathfinder Society, Starfinder Society has it. And I just find that much more safe and digestible and kind of maintainable like over time. And I, um, and I also kind of, I like, I think they do a good job of balancing scenarios and modules. So you kind of get a mix of like randomness, but also a mix of like actual combat for the people who are like hack and slash as well as puzzles and role play. Like I think all I've ever done was homebrew. I, I, I don't like to play a character insofar as I prefer to build the world, right? So all that work goes into it. And I've definitely been in positions where I spent a shit ton of time world building and we played, you know, a couple of nights. And that was it. To what you said about the resurgence, I bought the D&D starter kit for my kids over Christmas from Target. Um, so the fact that it was there, A, um, but then we started running one of the campaigns that was shipped with it because it's Stardica. So it gives you, I think, like, um, I don't know, the Elves of Findelver. I, I'm sure I butchered what that is, but it gives you this kind of like goblin chasing campaign that is really easy to get into. You can just open up the book and start. And I totally enjoy that, too. I, I just miss being able to name the stuff. There is, it's funny that you say that because... Uh, it is kind of mainstream now. There's tons of channels on it, and I can remember because I'm I was born in the in the 70s and grew up in the 80s um, when the perception of Dungeons and Dragons was like it's the devil's game, <laughs> you know, you're, you and because you know it just had all these stigmas with it, like what is your child doing, you know, um, and the fact that it had deity structures in it and faiths and things, I think, offended people. And I remember, I don't know, did you ever see that 1982 movie, Mazes and Monsters, at all? No, no. So there's this 1982 movie that has uh, Mazes and Monsters, and it actually has Tom Hanks in it. When what? He's very young. I swear, this is a real thing. You can literally Google it. Um, it's called Mazes and Monsters, and it's about um, this guy goes to college, and he starts playing instead of Dungeons and Dragons, it's Mazes and Monsters and with some of his roommates. And then he like, he gets obsessed with it and he lets his studies go and he just, and then they're like, we need to take it to the next level. And they go to LARPing. <laughs> what we know is LARPing now, but they didn't call it LARPing. I don't think then. And so they went to a cave system that was like out 
outside of uh, the university campus where they were. And like one of them who was the GM or dungeon master, like set up like traps and puzzles and like monsters and stuff. And Tom Hanks's character literally loses his shit. And he, 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 um, he goes crazy and he starts to think he is his character. And, um, and I think it came out afterwards that the movie was actually funded by this like family policy council kind of thing that was against Dungeons and Dragons or whatever. Um, but yeah, I didn't know if, yeah. so that's the atmosphere. It was like when I grew up, right. It, it was first edition and second edition Dungeons and Dragons. You had maybe a couple friends you could talk about it, but like on the school bus or at, at school, like people definitely just are like, it was not common and people wouldn't claim that they, they do that. Right. And it's funny to see now, like you watch, like the Netflix show Stranger Things, and they like play Dungeons <laughs> and Dragons on the regular with it, and it's cool again. I don't know. It's just interesting. It wasn't cool. I don't remember it being stigmatized, um, but we definitely didn't talk about this in school or in public. We we definitely talked about like like online video games, but they were like shooters. Um, and then when World of Warcraft came out, when I was I think in college or whatever that was different that was that was kind of a big change like part of it was gaming becoming increasingly more mainstream but world of warcraft i think was the first time i heard people in like coffee shops or in class talk about raiding a dungeon right i i'd never heard others kind of like talk about this so because the popularity of wow at least in the circles kind of i traveled that was the first time i saw that and then from there of course like you mentioned it was just a downward slope into being super popular now um yeah i i actually think like the tabletop D D that i ran with my kids borders on quaint um because because they can turn on xbox and play dragon age <laughs> or or something yeah. like that so it's definitely it's it's an odd time for gaming in that regards because they have, uh, wasn't it a couple of years ago, um, one of the Elder Scrolls came out and people like literally lost their job because they were playing it nonstop. Um, probably Skyrim, right? Skyrim, I think it's yeah. Skyrim, yeah. Um, and like the immerse, most immersive role-playing experience <laughs> that'll make you lose your job. So. <laughs> but it's funny that you talk about, what we use is, um, what I think the two things that I see when I go to conventions and I play, um, tabletop role-playing games and when I do society play or what I play weekly is Warhorn. I don't know if you've ever used Warhorn at all. No, I got to look it up. Um, and then Roll20. Um, so Warhorn is a game scheduling system that is open source and they totally go on donations and they kind of develop it out in the open. And then, uh, so if I'm, if I'm putting on a convention, for example, like, um, they have one in Pittsburgh that's called CosCon. Um, you would go to Warhorn. You would pay like, oh, 30 bucks to go to the convention. And then you would sign up for games. GMs and DMs can sign up. Like, I want to run a game when players can sign up. And it's this really cool kind of, um, it's probably the most widely used convention gaming um, scheduling kind of sign up system. There's a couple, wow. yeah, so like I think it kind of came out of um, there are things that are like certain conventions like Penny Arcade Expo or other ones will use their own systems. Sometimes Origins will use its own system, which is the Game Fair in Columbus, Ohio. And I'm not sure what Gen Con uses, which is the biggest in Indianapolis. 
Um, but it's kind of like, hey, if you're running a convention and you need to schedule a game, use that. And then Roll20 is actually the virtual is also kind of, um, I think it's probably the standard industry-wise for if you're running a tabletop game, but you're all doing it remotely. And so, like, I played with, like, three guys who are in Washington, D.C., one in Ohio, one who's just on the other side of town who we just don't, we don't, like, get in the same space, <laughs> um, and then one guy in California. And so we play at 8 o'clock in the evening um, one day a week. So, because that's, like, 4 o'clock p.m., I think, for Eric, who's in California. Oh, yeah. And and we take turns. We rotate it around, and we each week a different person is a game master, and then we all get to play. So we all get to play like 80% of the time and then get to run 20% of the time. But Roll20 actually has a toolbar. It has an instant messenger in it. It has a video chat and a microphone, so you can see everyone's faces. Um, you can do all the emotes you want. You can whisper and send secret messages to the GM. Oh, so, that's cool. And then you do the die roll, and it has, and then that's kind of the freemium. And then if you want to pay like more than that, it actually has um, templates for character sheets. It also has like dynamic lighting and special effects, and then you can use that kind of stuff. Um, so it's really great, and it's really cost effective, especially if you use it as much as I do, or if you're going to play at least once a week. Yeah, I mean, I've stumbled because I think Roll Twenty has kind of like gaming documentation on it too. And yeah. I feel like I recognize the name when I've Googled rules and I've had to stumble on it or I was buying a book. That sounds awesome. Actually, that sounds like a really fun, <laughs> that sounds like a, the Roll20 app sounds like a really fun product to probably work on. It is. I, yeah. I wish it, I, I, I would love to work on Warhorn or <laughs> maybe work on Roll20 because it's so, it would be cool, I think, to do the user experience for that. Yeah, I love the idea that because um, because here we are, you and I are in Google Hangouts right now. But I love the idea of one thing I'm missing in Slack that I really appreciate in say like Critical Role, um, and of course doing something on your own or in person. I mean, is having ambient music. So so like Critical Role plays just like a kind of like a gaming soundtrack, uh, but most of the time it is kind of appropriate for the situation so it's kind of like ramped up like drums when they're fighting and stuff like that i i love that kind of thing that's in world 20 they have is it yeah and you can do sound effects for like i was running like a pathfinder module here about a month ago it's called city of golden death and then basically it's like a tpk total party kill like if you dare to (laughs) adventure this you'll get great treasure and you'll like get tons of experience but you totally could die and so, um, and when there's a dragon at some point in it, and I actually found dragon roars, like three or four, and used them. And then when they're on the a map, it's like an overworld kind of thing, you know, um, I can choose the music when they're in a bubbly lava area. I can get, it's all the free music. You can play lava and awesome. like sound effects in the background. And it really lets you cultivate, I guess, and craft an experience that you want, which is awesome. Sorry, I'm on Roll20.net now. <laughs> so, and to your point, you're right. They do have documentation. And so if I'm, when you set up a game, you can say, like, is this a Pathfinder? Is it Dungeons and Dragons? Is it World of Darkness and whatever? And based on how you set it up and what character sheets you allow, and you can have multiple GMs, so you can have two people 
partner or co-GMing together, co-authoring the experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it has the rules. So if you're like, I don't know, what does the frighten condition do? You can, inside of Roll20, you can, and if your game is set to Dungeons and Dragons, you can type in frightened and it'll say, oh, it gives you a negative two on all your rolls for blah, 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 blah. And it, so it's like a phenomenal quick resource as well. Um, there is a, uh, I, I, I can't speak highly enough to it. Um, I wish um, we use Discord for chat and we mm. don't turn on our audio, our video, but I'm, I'm going to talk to our group this year because I'm like, let's just use the audio and the video chat that's in, uh, yeah. built into it. Why not? You know, it's, it's there. So, and I think it actually has a pretty, if you think about like um, a newie, right? A natural user interface and you want someone to kind that, of, that was a new acronym for me. I haven't ever heard that one. Oh, and NUI, NUI? Yeah, no. Yeah, it's actually, um, it's, it's, uh, it's, yeah, I, I uh, heard about that a couple of years ago, and I think it was in the Golden Krishna book, which is no UI. Um, mm. So it's, but basically, like, as a user starts to ramp up and use an application, they learn it by using it. And so that's a natural user interface in NUI. And so they, they don't have to have contextual help and they don't have to have a video tutorial and they don't have to have a documentation per se or training um, by interacting with it. They learn to use it. And uh, roll 20 is very much like that to where, Oh, I can see how in a toolbar I can roll my dice and move around and stuff. But then if you want to get like fancy with it, you can start putting in, um, okay, well I'll put in like emotes. And um, if I'm using this one thing over and over again, I can just save it. And then you can go like very complex when you get comfortable with it and you can start building macros and binding things and like yeah. building like to where it pops up an image. And when you swing a sword, you're, you can click a button and it's just, and it rolls the dice and it does the damage and it tells you the effect and gives you the narrative. And, and a lot of people do that too. And you can style how that looks. Like if you want it to look like have your picture in the background or have a template to it or everything. So it's kind of nice that you can, um, you can acclimate to it really quickly, but you don't have to, and you can go kind of build that kind of experience with it. Do you ever, do you like, do you record your sessions or do you ever revisit? I screenshot them and then what happened? And so a lot of the screenshots are my Twitter account. I do it every single time. So if you see screenshots, if you get a like UX bear and just kind of go through, you will see the environments like screenshots of us playing. Um, I GM a lot, probably more than the people I play with. And so, uh, I don't record them, um, but once you make a shell of a game and you put all the monsters in it and you put the maps in it and kind of Mm -hmm. put in the audio, I mean, that's saved. And so I've had friends who are like, hey, I want to run a game for what you ran last time, City of Golden Death, but I want to run that for some of my friends in Virginia. And I just make them a GM and they get access to the shell and everything. and Oh, that's insane. Yeah. It it looked like on Roll20, it looks like it has graphics. I don't know if I... Like, so, so you're actually like building a little game with its map tools. Yeah. So it has like, it's kind of like has three layers, like a simplified Photoshop. There's a map layer. There is a layer that's movable stuff like token layer. Yeah. And then there is a GM layer where you hide everything monsters <laughs> and like stuff until you want it to appear. And then there's the sidebar that you can share stuff with, with your players. Like if you want to share a handout with them or share like the undercover clue and there's something written or an image or something, you can put that in a section that they can always access, right? Um, but then uh, the maps can be 
uh, hexagonal. Um, they could be, they're all square shaped, but you could also set the size parameter. So you can say, oh, each square is five feet, mm -hmm. five feet squares, or you can make it like if it's a giant um, overworld map, you can say each square is like uh, 30 feet, you know, oh, and, word, yeah. and do like more large scale kind of combat and stuff like that if you want. That's awesome. Yeah, because I was thinking because ours is text based and it's written in third person and I use this little NPC bot and every so often like the, the narrative is sort of like punctured by dice rolls that seem out of place. All of a sudden I was kind of like scrolling up and I was like, hey, <laughs> um, it's not it's not novel quality, but all of a sudden I have this little story that I have now and it's already written and I don't know. I've been trying to think on what I want to do with it. Um, you should, uh, well, I could tell you what I would do with it. Yeah, what do you do with it? <laughs> well, so like for like, for um, Dungeons and Dragons and, and Paizo, which says Starfinder and Pathfinder, they're pretty um, strict on, you know, what, um, who can write for them and what scenarios oh. and adventures are, go out there. And so they either will specifically contact people who they know and have a working relationship, or it'll be an actual job that they'll post, right? And so I know a couple people who write for Paizo, and they do, they write scenarios and modules. But um, there are so many um, uh, third parties now that you can, like, if you look online for Dungeons & Dragons or Starfinder or Pathfinder or anything, you can say that, oh, there's tons of third-party classes. There's tons of third-party prestige classes, tons of, thir of third-party races. And so... Um, I think a lot of people like have great stuff, right? That have like a great scenario idea, a great adventure, and they kind of write it all out and they document it and they use it. And then, um, but they don't share it with the world. Right. So you could do that. You could actually take it to a third party publisher. I'm not saying you don't take it to a primary publisher, but um, the other option is just sharing it, like give it free access to people. I, I think I'm a, like hyper aware of opportunities to reuse content. <laughs> so I'm like, hey, this, like at work, you know, this thing can be turned into a newsletter <laughs> or an RSS feed or something like that. Um, and so now I'm thinking like, hey, this is sort of kind of the the waste of the energy that we put into this game, but it's not, it's not just like trash. And so, yeah, I might just like post it. Kind of to pivot again back to society, um, there are specific pre-generated characters as well as entry level kind of quests and scenarios that kind of get you running and teach you quickly what um, the mechanics of the game are. And they are kind of a 30 minute kind of session that really kind of makes you use skills, make you use ability checks, make you like awesome. attack and stuff. And it's really just to see like, Hey, do you, you may not even like this, you know, but at least it's you're in 30 minutes to an hour, you're going to at least see what it's about. And if you do like it, then, Hey, maybe try another character, play something longer, or maybe make your own character, you know, which is, um, I think there, there's always, uh, I think all organized plays do that to some degree because it's trying to get people to, yeah when they're running at a convention, you have people who come up and they maybe have just a half hour, an hour, and they want to learn how to play. And so there's those kind of entry-level quests for all of them that, that kind of show that. Yeah, I, I, I think there are huge lessons that can be learned by other industries from like how game like games in general like onboard their users. 
Well, I think we were talking a little bit about this before, which was like sure. the crossover between play testing and user testing, right? Oh, right, yeah. So basically, uh, you know, do you want a horrible? Ex uh, <laughs> do you, I, the last thing you want your users to do is the first time they interact with your app or system is just like this is confusing. I don't understand, and this I'm just going to walk away. And so I think, uh, you know. Play testing, which I've done a little bit of play testing before. But what? Like, Tell me about it. Okay. I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, so I did a. Um, in college, I was a play tester for Dungeons and Dragons. We had a group, so my college group that we tried to, and this will go into the whole like why I hate homebrew, anyways. But <laughs> I'll try to keep that out. But uh, but it's basically like we would have a group where we would they um, Dungeons and Dragons or TSR would send you kind of the module in advance, and you. Um, it was a system to where you would give feedback and you would say, this is, I didn't enjoy this or this was unclear and you would rate kind of their system. And then that's all packaged and sent by your dungeon master back in. And that's how they would know like this module kind of sucks or we need to change this scenario or adventure and we can't release this or sell it because there's going to be major problems. And so the play testing there is kind of similar to user testing to where it's like, we're trying to just get something low fidelity in front of the users as soon as possible. So we can see if this is something they even like or dislike, and then quickly pivot and adapt and see really, does this have value to the user? No, what does? Oh, wow, this thing we never even considered. So let's maybe focus on that mechanic. You know? Wow, really? Yeah. This sounds, I mean, this sounds like really familiar, but it doesn't seem like it. And yeah, so with tabletop board games, more so than role-playing games, uh, you, uh, you have a huge emphasis on paper prototyping, right? Because you, it takes tons of money and backing to build like wooden characters and like plastic yeah. characters and boards and print cards, like all of these decks of cards, or even, even if it's a, just an all card game, right? And so um, in game development, you paper prototype and you just do it printed off from your own printer you get users who are not your friends and your family members but actual people who would like to play games good user <laughs> experience 101 <laughs> yeah and then see and then that's the best way you can tell people will say like this mechanic is horrible it takes too much time i don't understand what i'm doing i don't this is detracting from enjoying it. and what i really enjoy is this part where we buff up people and we try to battle and stuff so it's like that's play testing and user play testing crossover. And then once you have something that does really well, people go where you go paper prototype to a, like a mock-up or a, you know, an interactive wireframe or something. Um, there is um, tabletop simulator, which is a free software that's out there. And it kind of is associated with steam. And so once your game is like, Hey, I've play tested this a bunch and I took it to cons and play tested it as a paper prototypes and whatever. Um, I think this actually has some merit. You can then build the electronic simple version of it, you know, through Tabletop Simulator and then get that out to like game studios and say, here, just download this file and you can play the game and see if you like it. And so I didn't know this until a couple of years ago, but a lot of um, people who are creating tabletop games now and are getting them out there and published, they're doing it after they do the paper prototyping and the play testing, they build it through Tabletop Simulator and then wow. just send that file out to a game studio and they'll try it. And they'll just like, this game is cool or like, we could work with you on this. There's some parts that- Game studios it. are just receptive to that shit? They, they're just like, hey, sure. Um, So it's kind of like that elevator pitch. Like if you, sure. it's kind of like, okay, I can give you the elevator pitch of like, this is how much it's going to cost. This is the concept of the game. And it's like, imagine munchkins, but you're all zombies and you blah, 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 do this. 
And then it's like, and if you're interested and that sounds cool to you, here's the file to download, you know? And so cool. it's, you're just trying to get someone. And I think people who've gone through the process before understand the pain. And so usually you can find game developers who are happy to give their perspective on other games that are up and coming. Is there a, there, there has to be a major gap though, between, um, the, the finished polished game, like board game or tabletop game that you can actually buy in like your comic store versus whatever, <laughs> whatever period of design came before that. Like I, I, what, like I, I wonder, like, what what do folks do if they play taste play tested this game and this game seems to work or whatever, but then they send it out to game studios and uh, there's just no takers. There's no is that it seems I, like it's... such a such a loss or or or, or no. It seems so like the, it's a very hard thing to like self publish. So actually, it's not hard, but it's like there is three. I actually sat on a when I last time I went to the Penny Arcade Expo, I sat on a panel on this because it's like how games get designed, developed, and get out there. Yeah. And they spent like three-fourths of the seminar talking about playtesting and then making sure that, you know, it's like you could think you have the best game in the world and your family and friends will agree with you, but it's like those aren't your users and you need to actually test it. But to your point, like you can go the route of kickstarting it, right, and saying like I want to put this out there and fund it. If you haven't done playtesting before that, though, Word. you could be building – you could be – putting money into a game that's horrible and that's not going to sell. But well, th this is totally analogous to literally every <laughs> digital product that you make. I mean, this is, this is correct. For 100%, a living. Yeah. It's funny that they've been doing this, you know, years and years before it became popular in the, in the mainstream. Yeah. I think that the, the crossover there is interesting. And um, I would love to have an episode with you sometime where we talk about like, getting software up and out, you know, like oh, sure. as, as the quick as possible, because the thing that they were outlining is like, you can do an elevator pitch that's going to have a budget and you can try to get that to someone and get like a game studio to back it. Now be prepared fully. The game studio is going to tell you, it's like, yeah, we're not making these parts out of wood and this is going to cost too much. And like, yeah, this <laughs> mechanic where you want to have stacked this pyramid to keep track of something. Can we do that with paper or cardboard instead? You know, And so as long as you're open to that, I think you can. Um, but then the other method is if you do back it yourself, you kickstart it yourself, you do something. But this is the thing that people don't get about Kickstarter, and I see it all the time with people who create their own games and then put them up on Kickstarter. I back a lot of games on Kickstarter, like sure. a reckless amount that I <laughs> should not like, discuss. But it's like, you have to have, before you go to Kickstarter, you have to have your social media following already. You have mm. to have the appearance that, hey, this project's already done. We're just looking to finish that last 5%. And so that means you've done due diligence, you've done playtesting, you've gone to like 20 different gaming conventions and spread let people play it and build hype about it and follow you on Twitter or, you know, on Facebook or whatever. And then, and they want to know when your Kickstarter goes live. And so that way, when you go live, it gets funded in a day. Um, if you just go to Kickstarter and you're hoping that people will find you and back you, it's, it's going to fail. And that's how it's, uh, uh, any game developer will tell you 100%. And I mean, tabletop game developer, that that's what happens. I had a follow-up but I forgot it. <laughs> <laughs> so I've actually done like participated like in the playtesting, which is what you, when yes. you asked about doing that with Fences and Dragons. 
Um, I've also done Pathfinder kind of playtesting as well because I run, I was a coordinator for years and I run society testing and you can sign up for mm -hmm. playtests. So Pathfinder is going to have these two new characters come out for Starfinder this fall. You can play test them for one month in January this month. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. And then you can't do anything with them till then. Now on the other side, like I attempted a couple times I've done, um, when I, uh, I have three board games that I've kind of worked on. Um, one of them has got to the level of being a prototype. Another one's just a paper prototype and another one's, uh, before that even. And, uh, you kind of, I record the sessions, I kind of conduct the games, I put the rules out there, to, and then I just observe and get feedback. So not just qualitative and quantitative, but it's like self-reporting on their part, on the player's part, but then also conducting, you know, kind of that intercept user testing where you're in the middle of the game and you're like, I noticed that you were, con right. that you hesitated here, or are you confused about something, or do you, what is your thoughts? And, and kind of getting that, the players to speak just like you would in a usability test, right? Right. And so I've done some of them to where I'm like, this game is dead. It makes no sense. <laughs> and it's like, there's nothing good here. And, I've, and I ended it. And another one, I was like, this actually has potential. Um, I did two rounds of playtesting, three rounds, and then just kind of uh, just lost interest, right? And then another one, I actually did four or five rounds and then got to the point where I um, did some nice quality printing of the cards. Yeah. Um, and I've just kind of let them set. Like, I've never really done anything with them. But it, I can tell you the crossover between usability testing and play testing is, is it's almost the exact same thing. It sounds like it, yeah. Um, well, even even like shipping software, we, we should talk about it at some point. Probably not now because it'll be its own tangent. But I literally just came back from Facebook um, as part of like of an, uh, an accelerator where we were supposed to build a membership campaign. Excuse me, a campaign, like a product. And we did it and we did it in like a couple weeks. <laughs> and uh, the, the conceit was that, hey, um, we're going to hammer this out. We're not going to use ideal tools to do it. We're gonna use what we got. We're gonna hammer it out. Um, we'll do a little bit of in, uh, super user interviewing our, our, our whales. Um, we're gonna interview our whales and then figure out what our MVP is and then hammer it out and then launch it. And we did. So can and you speak gross. to what a whale is exactly? Yeah. Uh, so this is this is lingo I I picked up relatively recently. Um, you have your your product and or service has three different user types. You have whales. I'm trying to remember whales, fish, and barnacles. <laughs> well, it's, it's something of that sort, right? I'm starting to wonder if this is like the perfect starting point for the next episode of the podcast because i think software development and these users i would like to ask you so much more about it our next episode let's let's talk about um let's just go into user not user personas this is a this is a bad word that is now conflated with other with other user experience things but user archetypes right so whales fish and barnacles I, and i have and I have three others I like. It's like there are no hippos in the user experience. <laughs> but um, but yeah, absolutely. I think it's a really good idea to talk about that. So I'm thinking like next time we're talking about stakeholders and different types of users as they are animals. <laughs> you think we need like a, a to be continued kind of script next time on metric. <laughs>
<laughs> it's, it's gonna happen and like i i we, we voiced it into the universe and that's what i'm gonna have to edit now <laughs> next time find out what barnacles whales and fish are and uh i guess you would do uh seagull managers and hippos and the other stakeholders that are embodied boots of animals like the little chiptunes music probably just started after <laughs> you finished the next time <laughs> yeah, it's, i feel like you're gonna be cutting a lot out of this video <laughs> no way no this is this is perfect